Let's begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, give us eyes to be able to see the truths of your words and ears to be able to receive them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. begin chapter 12 today. Before we do that, I wanted to just give a little bit of um, uh, uh, information about where we are in Sunday school and kind of what the next few weeks you can expect. So we are, obviously today, we're going to go through 12, 1 through 17. Uh, Next week, Father Thad has a presentation that he'll be giving on the development of the English Bible. And if you're saying... Well, that sounds really boring. I promise you it's not. I I haven't heard Father Thad's presentation, but I have learned my own about how the English Bible came to be. And it is a story filled with death, scandal, um, all sorts of things. Say it again. Intrigue. Oh, yeah. it, It could be a Dateline special. So be here next week to hear that. The next week is um, Palm Sunday. We'll continue and finish up chapter 12 of Hebrews. I had hoped to finish this study before Easter. It's just not working out. We will not have Sunday school on Easter Sunday. And then the, the Sunday after, though, the first Sunday of Easter, we will, or first Sunday after Easter, we will finish up Hebrews, do all of chapter 13. And then after that, we're going to go into a, um, we have a couple people, families in the church who are interested in joining, and we need to have a new members class. And so I'm going to have a four-part new members class during the Sunday school hour. It's going to be primarily for the new members, but it's going to be for, of course, the whole church. Anyone who's welcome to come may come. Um, And it's it's a good time to kind of shore up on the basics and on some Anglicanism 101. And then whenever that class is over, that'll take all of May, the first Sunday of June, June 5th, we will begin a 10 10 to 12-part study or book discussion, we're going to be looking at the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read Screw Tape Letters, has anyone who's who's read Screw Tape Letters? Yeah, just a few of you, about half, a little bit less than half. And it is a um, it's a fun book. It is a it is a fictional book, but as C.S. Lewis himself said, it was one of the it, it he was so uncomfortable writing it because. He felt, because it, it's, it's letters from one demon to another, it made him uncomfortable because he realized he knew the enemy strategy way too well. So it's going to be a lot of fun as we think about um, that study will help. Yeah, we'll think about the devil. We'll think about spiritual warfare. We'll think about what does it mean to avoid sin and to live with. It's going to be a very devotional book and a lot of fun. Lewis is just an incredible author and thinker. So... That's kind of giving you, that'll take us all the way through the summer, and then in the fall, we'll start something else, okay? So with that, let's look then at Hebrews 12. So today, we look at the first part of chapter 12. It is good to recall that chapter divisions were not written by the biblical authors, and sometimes they can create stronger divides in the text than organically exist. What I mean by that is we are so used to looking at, say, um... Hey, chapter 11 has ended, chapter 12 starts, that must be a hard break. Just like when you're reading a book, a novel or something, you get to the end of a chapter, that's a stopping point, right? A thought has concluded. Now, normally these good books kind of um, lead you into the next chapter, right? Hey, good morning. Um, 
I am out of them. I didn't know this many people would be here. So if someone wants to share, then we can do that. Sorry. So, um, so yeah, these chapter breaks do not, um, Sarah Helen, Sarah Helen, these chapter divides don't exist in the original text, as in the writer of Hebrews did not divide his book into 13 chapters. That was a later invention. And then even later was verse division. You all, I always had a professor in seminary tell me, he said, you can always tell when someone's putting words into the reformer's mouth, whether it's Thomas Cramner or Martin Luther, when they quote a Bible verse, because Bible verses didn't exist till after the Reformation. So these are actually pretty late divisions. And so it's helpful for us. It's a reference point, right? Rather than saying, hey, turn to that part in Hebrews that talks about the hall of faith, I can say, turn to chapter 11, right? It gets us there. But we just need to know that sometimes these divisions, they cause issues. And this is why when we're reading in, sometimes in church, the divisions don't match up well because our lectionary predates these divisions of chapter and verse usually. Okay, so why am I telling you all this? The great roll call of faith or the hall of faith of chapter 11 flows seamlessly into chapter 12. And 12, 1 through 4, the first part that we'll look at today, is both the conclusion of chapter 11 and the beginning of a new section. You'll find this especially with writers of the New Testament because the primary mode of communication in the ancient world was what? Orality. Orality, oral. It was speaking. And so these written things we have in the New Testament were written with speaking out loud in mind. And if you've ever heard a speech... Or a sermon, which is, I've told people, this is complete sidebar, probably two steps away. I love that in the church, it's one of the few places today that you still hear an oral, uh, an oration on a regular basis. That used to be very common in the world until very recently because literacy skills were low and that's just how you learn things, right? I mean, people would stand up and talk and speak and that's kind of gone by the wayside. We have a lot of YouTube videos and Instagrams and stuff like this. But where does someone stand up and talk to you? Uh, a classroom at school? But that's a lecture. That's different. Where do they give an exhortation? Really, the sermon is one of the few places left in our modern world. Okay, back to this. Is when you're thinking about the scriptures as being written for the sake of orality, for the sake of being oral and in your ear, what you notice is that when people speak, there aren't normally hard divides. I mean, you, maybe you notice this sometimes in a, a good Baptist sermon will point one, point two, point three, or they'll spell a poem, you know, ABC, something like this. That's to help us because most of us in the modern world primarily communicate through the written word before the spoken or heard word. So we're used to these very hard breaks. In scripture, that is not how they were used to it. One idea, it was considered good rhetoric if one idea flowed into another one and led you there. The whole point would be you listen to the book of Hebrews as a sermon and you go, I don't really know where the dividing points were, but he covered all this material and he took me from A to B to C to D and I don't really know when or how he did it. Sometimes there's breaks in scripture, of course. This is just important information, I think, as you read Holy Scripture to keep it in mind that these were written to be spoken out loud and to be kind of continuous speeches for our ears. And so 12, 1 through 4 is going to be both the introduction to a new section and the conclusion of the previous section. Now, this new section presents three images or ideas to help us understand the Christian life. 
First, our life is an endurance race, a pretty common image in Paul and here in Hebrews. It's already been brought up some. Second, it is growth towards maturity. We could think of just growing up as, uh, as we did as children, adolescents, into maturity. And finally, our life in Christ is a joyous liturgical assembly. We'll get to that part in our next class. This last image provides the author with, with an occasion to offer one final warning against apostasy. All right, let's look at 12, 1 through 4. I'm going to read this. It's a short section. I'm just going to read it. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So a very famous passage. I'm sure that many of those uh, verses and words were something you've heard. The cloud of witnesses laying aside every burden, running the race. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the, um, he endured the suffering of the cross. So the author envisions a scenario that parallels the Christian life. In this life, we are like runners, striving with all their might for the finish line and goal. Our striving, though, is not running, but faithful endurance. And our goal is not a medal or a crown like they would have given in the ancient Olympics. The Olympic Games were super popular during this time period. That's why there's... They, were, they ran naked. That's right. Um, and that's, and they did? They did, yes. And that's why he's laying a... This is, there's probably actually a reference to that in this chapter um, where he says, lay aside every burden. Uh, where does he say it? Mm. Uh, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. It's probably a reference that in the ancient world, they would have taken off literally every weight, all their clothing, so they could run faster. And he's using that image to say, you parallel, not that you need to lay aside your clothing, but you need to lay aside the weight of sin and all these things that hinder you in your race. Now, now that we were detracted by nakedness, let's see, our goal is not a medal or a crown, but eternal life with God. Surrounding a runner is his friends and family who cheer and support they participate in his race and victory vicariously. We all do this, right? Who's ever been around someone who hasn't played a day of football in their life, but will talk about, we won last night. We beat so-and-so. You don't say it often in Tennessee, but, you know, we won last night. I know. I'm a Tennessee fan, but it's true. And so we participate vicariously through the sports teams that we watch. And, I mean, being a fan is as much, it's not as much of playing the game, but it, it's a piece of the whole. Well, he uses that analogy here as well. Similarly, we are surrounded by the great company of saints, both Old and New Testament saints, who urge us to remain faithful and participate with us in our own Christian life through prayer and example. The great contest set before us calls for action, 
First, says the writer of Hebrews, we must lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. Like runners who must shed excess weight in order to run well or lay aside their clothing, we must lay aside the spiritual bulk or burden in, uh, or burden that impedes our progress. This could mean a wrong mindset, laziness, laxity in religion, and so forth. It's a way of saying, check yourself. How serious are you taking the Christian faith? Is church once a month? Is church twice a month? Is church something you dread coming to? Do you prefer to go hang out with your friends or your other commitments? Does church fall third on your list? Those are questions to ask. Because In church, right, you can supplement relationship with Christ. As liturgical Christians, we see that deeply tied together. Our relationship is lived out in the community of the faithful. Uh, you can ask questions of yourself about reading, morning prayer. I mean, are you more apt to read three chapters in your, um, I don't know, mystery novel at night, but you struggle to read 10 verses in Holy Scripture? Check yourself. Part of the reason, part of the uh, emphasis of Lent is a reorientation in those things. Now, most especially, we must strive to remove sin in our life. Like obstacles on a racetrack, nothing can trip us up more in our walk with Christ than unchecked and unconfessed sin. Again, emphasis during Lent, come to confession. With excess weight and burdens laid aside, we can run with patience the race that is set before us. To run with patience can also be translated as persevere in running. The idea is that we need, like any good athlete, endurance. This is one of the essential qualities of both the runner and the Christian. We are not engaged in the 100-meter dash. It is not a sprint, the Christian life. But we are running cross-country. We are running long distance. Is anyone in here a runner or was a runner or likes running? Yeah? Was. That's why we have handguns. Yeah, I saw a bumper sticker that said... Um, says, uh, oh no, it, what did it say? It was a, no, it wasn't a bumper sticker. It was a guy who talked about a bumper sticker. I was at a, uh, a youth retreat with my church in Roanoke years ago, and the guy speaking was like, yeah, I was, I was going down the street, and I wasn't walking or running because I own a car. I was driving, so I thought, I just, it just struck me because I, I try and run. If you ever see me, sometimes I run out here on Campbell Station or down Keekston Pike, and people have honked their horn at me and jeered and laughed because... <laughs> What are you doing? I'm running. Oh, that's running. Okay. It's, it's more like um, gesticulating very awkwardly and fast. <laughs> and even then, not great. It's very, it's very sad. So this is why you don't play video games as children. It's hard to recover. And when you don't do any physical activity for years. All right, where was I? Running, endurance. Endurance is one of the hardest things for running. I mean, speed is important. But if you're really going to run a race and do an endurance, it's, it's about keeping up with it. You can go slow, right? It's what? Quickness. Quickness. Explain. What's quickness versus speed? If you get them first, you win. Mm. Yeah, it's the parable of the tortoise and the hare by Aesop, right? Aesop's fable. It's um, slow and steady wins the race. And that's endurance. That's what he's calling for here. But endurance has to be built up, not training. Yeah, for In sure. spiritual life as well as the athletic life. Yeah. Oh, a good example is I, there's... I have a brother-in-law. He's very athletically fit. And if we were to do the 100-yard dash, he would be finished before I even started. He really would. But 
when we, we've gone on, we've gone on a run together and after a mile, I'm just warming up and he's, you know, on the grass about to vomit. And so there is a difference between endurance and, and, and different things need different athletic competitions call for different skills. What, uh, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the Christian life is a long, long race and you need endurance, endurance, endurance. We've got to keep going. We're going slow. Great. Longevity, endurance, perseverance. These mark the example of those who have gone before us. And they must mark our walk with Christ as well. Just as runners set their eyes on the finish line as they race, so we must set our eyes on our goal, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This title, sometimes rendered as leader and perfecter of our faith, implies that Jesus has blazed the trail of faith before us and will one day bring our faith to perfection. More than any of the biblical heroes praised in chapter 11, Jesus is our supreme example of faith. We can think of those bracelets that got popular in the mid-90s. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Sometimes I like those. Sometimes I don't because, you know, Jesus is God. It's kind of hard for us to do everything Jesus did. But it's true. The author of Hebrews here is saying, set your eyes on Jesus. He, he is our example. Jesus also strove in a contest of endurance. And he gives us an example of endurance, faith, and complete reliance on God, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But it is more than just an example. As those who participate in the life of Jesus through faith and the sacraments, that's us, our endurance participates in his the joy that is set before us, eternal life with Jesus, is only possible because he foresaw this same joy, eternal life with you. He truly has gone before us and provided the path to him. Verse 3 focuses on another aspect of our Lord's suffering. For consider him that endured such contradiction, or another way to translate that is opposition, of sinners against himself. Jesus not only endured physical pain, but also the intense inner pain of rejection by the very ones who loved, he loved, and came to save. If we can consider such painful spiritual endurance, it will put into perspective our own troubles. This is a quote from Healy. The original readers of Hebrews, like so many Christians today, were in danger of losing heart and dropping out of the race. By contemplating Jesus we are strengthened against the temptation to discouragement and motivated to persevere. So I would encourage you all to get your hands on a little book. You can get it from Amazon. It is, it, it's printed by one of these print-on-demand groups. It's, it's something that was written in the 1800s. It's by E.B. Pusey. E.B. Pusey was a great Anglican uh, Tractarian movement. Um, he became, in essence, the leader of the Oxford movement, which is what gave way to the Anglo-Catholic movement later, a generation later, after John Henry Newman defected to Rome. E.B. Pusey was a professor at Oxford, and he wrote this incredible book. It's, well, it's actually not a book he wrote. It's 11, is it 11 or 9, 11 addresses that he gave at a retreat for some sort of organization called the Companions of Jesus. We don't really know much about them anymore. They were some sort of attempt to revitalize lay monastic life in England. Um, but their whole point was to pray for sinners. That was kind of their job. That was their, in, in the terms of monasticism, that was their charism, their gifting. And he addresses this group. The name of the book is, it's obscenely long. It is 
the love of God and of Jesus Christ for the blessed for the of uh, intercession for the blessedness of souls on and on and on addresses given at a retreat for the company of Jesus. Like it is so long that eventually it just goes dot 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 on the cover page. Um, but what's interesting? It means to be continued. To we don't have enough space. So this um, this book in there, he meditates on not just the physical sufferings of Jesus, and he does just a powerful way. The English language was at just such a height before the modern age. And, and the way he meditates on Jesus' suffering is incredible. And, but then in one of his chapters, he meditates upon the intense internal spiritual suffering of Jesus, particularly this thing right here, that he came to save these people who are wounding him and beating him. And it's something we, we say. I mean, John says it in the prologue to his gospel, right? He came into the world and the world knew him not. You know, these are the ones who betrayed him and turned him over to the cross. But have you sat and meditated upon it? Well, I would highly encourage you to get your hands on E.B. Pusey's meditations. The book is fairly small. Maybe it becomes something you can sit and read and meditate on Good Friday this year. I would encourage it. Verse 4 is an odd exhortation, isn't it? What did it say? I want to read it. It says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What's he saying? Well, in essence, it says, Cheer up. You haven't been martyred yet. While a bit blunt and strange, the point is that in their struggle against sin, particularly the sin of apostasy, leaving the faith, the Hebrews have not had to die for the faith like Jesus and so many of the Old Testament saints mentioned in the previous chapter. They should take courage then. If so many stay faithful and then faced with certain, even with faith with certain death, then they can remain faithful in their current situation. And what an exhortation for us too. You think your life's hard. Man, do we have some stories for you. That's in essence what he's saying. You need to remember the saints who were flayed alive and beheaded and burned at the stake and this and that. Stay faithful. Cheer up. You've not yet shed your blood for Jesus. And that might come, but it's not yet. Let's look at 12, 5 through 13. Would someone be willing to read that? Yeah, go ahead, Father. Oh, oh go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I'll get you next time, Father Tim. No, go ahead. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which spaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now to chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. Thank Follow you. Me. No, that's it. 13. 13. That's it. Thank you. 
So most Christians understand that suffering is an unavoidable part of human life. Even still, we are often surprised and discouraged when we encounter it, right? In this section, the writer gives us an exhortation on how to rightly understand sufferings and trials. They are discipline, and in Greek, the word here is paideia, actually, which is the name of uh, the academy, the school that Jessica sends her kids to over here in, I guess, I guess it's Hardin Valley. Paideia, and it's often translated sometimes as education or training, but it also carries with it in the ancient Greek a sense of discipline because to rear a child would have been to discipline them, train them, educate them. It's not just intellectual, but it's a whole mindset. And it is the discipline of the loving father in heaven. The key word through this section is son, which is inclusive of both men and women in this context. Through his sufferings and death, Christ was manifest as the full son of God. Through our union with Jesus, our trials and sufferings take on a similar character. Current suffering is training in future glorious sonship. The section begins with the writer calling his reader's attention to a passage from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, in which Solomon exhorts his spiritual son to accept discipline. The Proverbs text cautions against two wrong responses to discipline. It, the first is disdain, to disdain discipline. This is like a child who laughs off correction with no intention of changing, of, of changing themselves. We've all met these kids, right? It's like every middle schooler we know. The other, uh, the, so that's one end of the spectrum. Do not disdain correction. I'm not going to do that. Leave me alone, old man, right? And then the other side is do not lose heart. That is, do not become dejected in despair when you are disciplined, either in Solomon's case, it was earthly, but he's connecting this now to our heavenly father, the writer of Hebrews. This latter response is the, the one, I've got so many typos because uh, try to make um, Sunday school lessons when your kids are screaming at you. So this latter response is the one which the Hebrews are most prone to have. The proverb gives the reason for discipline. And that is his love, God's love. God allows suffering because he deeply cares about his children growing to full maturity. Now that seems contradictory, but I think anyone who has raised children gets this to some degree. Don't we sometimes allow our children to live out the decisions they've made, which might include suffering, so that they can grow into full maturity? Yeah? We agree? No? No one's ever done that? Yeah. Sarah Helen, please stop, okay? Thank you. In verses 7 through 8, the author now gives his commentary and application. We are to endure sufferings as discipline. That's supposed to be our mindset. For this is how God deals with his beloved sons. Again, discipline could be a, a word that makes you think, well, what have I done to get in trouble? What have I done to deserve this? Think of that more holistic term of paideia. Education, training, discipline in the sense of rearing a child holistically. As a point of common sense, the writer asks, what loving father does not discipline his son? The implied answer is, well, none. You know, every loving father disciplines. It's at, well, in this day and age, it's hard with the soft parenting stuff. Y'all know what soft parenting is going on? It's kind of nonsense where you let the kids kind of direct and do their own thing and 
If the kid wants to eat this for dinner, they eat it for dinner, and you're just supposed to love and support them. And I would argue, say it again. Yeah, wash your hands with dough. That would be, I would say that that is, in many ways, while it's presented as love in our culture, it's ultimately unloving because you're not forming and shaping a child to grow up to be a healthy adult. God, I mean, you, I'm not saying everyone who's raised that way is not going to be a healthy adult, but I hate to see who's going to run this country in 30 years. So, verse 9. Verse 9 uses that same rabbinical argument that we've seen in a few places in the letter. It's the argument from lesser to greater. If we have respect and honor for our earthly fathers, that's a given in the ancient world, and he's, he's using it as a given. Respect, honor, and loyalty to our earthly fathers who are imperfect and give imperfect discipline, how much more loyalty and honor should we have for our perfect heavenly father? That's, his, that's part of his argument in verse 9. The imperfection of human parental discipline is set against God's perfect discipline in verse 10. Look at verse 10. For, the, for they, ver- that's earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Our parents did what they thought was best and only for a short time. But God disciplines us for our benefit. He knows exactly what we need. That we might be made partakers of his holiness. That's the end goal. This means he knows what we can handle, provides the means for overcoming and enduring, and only has our best interests in mind. What does it mean then to be a sharer in God's own holiness? Well, it's a metaphor actually for God himself. We become partakers of the divine nature. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, that we have become partakers of the divine nature. You know, we, there's a lot of different metaphors for salvation. We can think of Christ paying the penalty on the cross. We can think of, um, oh gosh, now I'm blanking on others. Oh, the ransom being paid. He's paid a price kind of just generally for the, the debt of our salvation. We can think of punishment. We can also think, though, of what Jesus has done in the incarnation is he has united human flesh with the divine nature and that through his work on the cross, he's overcome death and sin and in the resurrection given us a promise of eternal life and that part of our salvation is being united to Jesus. We're baptized into him. We're filled with his Holy Spirit. In the Eucharist, we partake of his body and blood. And the whole point is not that we become God in the sense of absorbed into him like Eastern religion would say, but we become filled with his divine energy. We become filled with his love and his holiness and his attributes, but remain creature the rest of our whole lives, of course. That's kind of a, a grand picture of salvation. And that's what he says here is that the reason God is, sets disciplines and sufferings in our life is because they are the means through which we acquire more and more holiness and grow closer in union with Jesus Christ. Don't you see this in your own life? When life goes rough, what do you end up normally doing the first thing? Giving up. Well, I hope not. Normally, it's prayer. A lot of people, they'll turn to prayer. When life goes well, that's normally when people pray the least, okay? But when life's going rough, you normally are turning to, to God in prayer. I need help. I need this. Help me. Help me. In sufferings, we tend to cling closer to Jesus. And God knows this. It's, it's part of the weakness of our human nature. But God cares mostly about our holiness, not our happiness. And I mean earthly happiness. Of course, 
holiness leads to eternal happiness um, for eternal bliss. Point I, Hebrews now applies the old adage, no pain, no gain, to the spiritual life. Look at verse, uh, what would it be, 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, right? It doesn't feel good to get disciplined in the moment. Who likes to be scolded or spanked? But grievous, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. No pain, no gain. Correction and discipline never feel good in the moment, but they are indispensable pieces to our growth as humans. Later in life, we realize the importance of our parents' discipline. I hope you do. And likewise, we can see after the fact the growth in our souls due to suffering faithfully. Now, the writer offers something of a rallying cry in verses 12 through 13. Like a coach shouting encouragement to his players from the sideline, the writer is telling the readers to get back in the game and run the the race faithfully. Verse 12, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down. You can just kind of imagine someone drooping. And the feeble knees. So maybe they're they're kind of sluggish and just, oh, I can't make it. And make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and let it rather be healed. He says, kind of, perk up. You can do this. Run the faith with endurance. All right, Father Ted, read 14 through 17, if you will. Penalties of disobedience. Strive for peace without everyone, and for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one be deprived of the grace of God, that no bitter root spring up and cause trouble, through which many may become defiled, that no one be an immoral or profane person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit his father's blessing, he was rejected because he found no opportunity to change his mind, even though he sought the blessing with tears. Thank you. So verses 1 through 13 that we've just looked at, they were an exhortation to endure the trials that come in life. And in particular, the Hebrews are probably facing persecution because of their faith in Jesus. This section emphasizes the proactive steps we should take to attain the goal of eternal life. Verse 14 is really the center and the focus, and it's two lines with two different commands. First, we are to strive for peace. Peace in the biblical sense is not just the cessation of conflict, right? We think of peace like we pray for peace in the Ukraine right now. Uh, Cessation of war. It's the absence of conflict. Well, in the biblical concept, this word shalom in Hebrew, it is a positive idea. Not just the absence of something, but the presence of wholeness of rightness, of beauty and flourishing with God and with the world. And so by saying strive for peace, he's not just saying stop being in conflict with other people, but you need to strive for the fullness of God's blessing to be in all your life and in relationships and to be in harmony with others. This is a powerful exhortation in my mind, given the context, right? They're facing persecution and trials from other people. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them to strive for peace, even with those who persecute you. The writer is calling for his readers to be better than those who hurt them, to live in peace with each person they encounter. Now, second, he says that they should pursue holiness, for without it, no one will see the Lord. 
As Hebrews makes clear, we have already been made holy by Christ's shed blood. You've already been made holy, okay? But here the point is that we must allow that holiness to transform every aspect of our lives. We can look at 1 Corinthians 1-2. Now, if you read it in your English Bible, let me flip over. I want you to see this. This is a paradox that takes place all throughout Scripture, but often our translations hide the deeper meaning from the, he- the Greek from us. So maybe Sunday school class, I'll just teach us all Greek. How about that? Yeah, you want to learn Greek? Okay. Paul says this in chapter 1 of his first epistle to... Is that where I'm at? Hold on, I lost my place. Yeah, is it? Yeah. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1-2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Well, that sounds very nice and pious. If you're reading in Greek, what you're going to notice is it's going to say, to those who have been made holy, uh, edzo is the verb, to be made holy. Hagios is the Greek word for holy, so be made holy, which is what it's doing in Latin. Sanctify is the Latin version of that, because sanctus is holy in Latin. And in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Well, what is the word in Greek for saints? Hagioi, holy ones. It just means holy. And so he literally says, to those who have been made holy, called to become holy ones. It's a paradox. Either am I holy or not? It's an already not yet reality. Already not yet. We have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ and he has given us his holiness. But we must therefore strive to make it our own. We must cooperate with the grace of God presented to us in this life, granted to us in baptism is how I would say it. The fullness of holiness is given to you in your baptism, and the rest of your life is to live up to it, to live it out by the grace of God. There is an implicit warning here then. If you don't become who you already are, if you don't become holy as you already have been made holy, then you won't see God. On the flip side, there's a promise of eternal life. Those who allow the Spirit to work holiness in their lives will see God face to face. And that is the ultimate fulfillment of humanity's deepest desire, to see God face to face. Verse 15. Verse 15 reveals that the peace and holiness of verse 14 are achieved in the context of community. Look at verse 15. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. It's plural. It's the context of the community. Don't let others fall away. Don't let a root of bitterness be amongst the community because that will ruin peace and you can't strive for holiness when there is disruptions in the community. We strive for peace and attain holiness as we care for fellow believers, especially those on the verge of apostasy. We must make sure, to the best of our ability, that we avoid planting a root of bitterness, or as it's often translated, a bitter root. That is strife, quarreling, and any other disruptions in our private and personal life that can lead to apostasy which is what he means by deprived of the grace of God. Now, verse 16 provides a counterexample of what we should be in the person of Esau. So, let's quickly just refresh our minds. Esau is one of the sons of of, um, uh, Isaac. 
So there's two boys, they're twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau's the older. Esau should be getting the birthright, which is not just a larger portion of the inheritance, but the spiritual blessing to carry on the promise of Abraham. That's what's going on. Abraham blesses Isaac. Isaac becomes the promised child. Isaac has two sons. Which one's going to become the promised son? And his seed will bless the world. It should be the oldest. But what does Esau do? In a rash moment of hunger, he sells his birthright in spiritual blessing for a pot of lentils. There's actually a dish in, in Mediterranean culture that they believe was the dish. And they'll make it and eat it that Esau sold his birthright. And I've had it. And um, it's, it's really good. It, may be, it might be worth it. No, I'm kidding. So this is what Esau does, right? This, so um, he is the greatest biblical example of one who forfeits what is eternal and valuable for the sake of short-term instant gratification. He gives up his God-given inheritance for a bowl of soup. Because of this great act of stupidity, the writer calls Esau profane, which means godless or irreligious. He sees it as an act of of sin committed against God, and immoral. Do you notice that word, pornos? Where do, you, where do you think that comes into our English language? Yeah, it's where we get pornography. The king, this is why the King James calls him a fornicator. Now, Genesis does not describe Esau in this way. However, the writer of Hebrews is probably connecting the dots, or I would say earlier rabbinical tradition, and the writer of Hebrews is picking up on it, connecting the dots that Esau marries two pagan women. All right, His lack of self-control in food led to a lack of self-control in marriage and in sex. This is why we put food as an emphasis in fasting, because there's something very just earthy and human. If you can control what goes into your belly, you normally can control what comes out of your mouth and what you do with the rest of your body. Food's important. All throughout scripture, sexual immorality is linked with idolatry. This makes a lot of sense in the ancient world because most pagan rituals include uh, fornication with temple prostitutes. If you wanted to entreat the gods for it to reign upon the earth, what did you do? You had some sort of fertility ritual and cult, and I won't go into what they thought the reign was from the gods and hence why they did it. All throughout scripture, sexual immorality is linked with idolatry. Marriage was a solemn covenant between man and woman before God. To commit sexual immorality was to disregard the sacred covenant of marriage and to worship the first false god of pleasure. As experience over the past 2,000 years has shown, and I witnessed this in my own few short years in ministry, people usually apostatize from the faith because they're sleeping with someone. They shouldn't, and they refuse to repent. I would say that is the number one reason I know someone, people who have left the faith. There's other reasons, but that seems to stand out. Uh, I was talking with a friend who's a priest the other day, and we were talking about someone who was struggling with the Christian faith and thinking about leaving. And he said, so I just point blank asked him, who are you sleeping with? And sure enough, he told me. And so that was it. And it's amazing how our bodies and our souls are intimately connected in that way. And so that's what they're seeing in Esau. Esau gets deemed all these words, irreligious, profane, um, immoral sexually, because of what he do, how he disregards God in the covenant and then marries two pagan women. Now, verse 17 continues the counterexample of Esau and reminds the readers that after his rash and immoral disregard for his birthright, he was further rejected by his father and could not undo his sins. So you remember, he rejects his birthright. 
Um, and then he tries to go in and get a blessing from his father, but J Jacob, his brother, beat him to it. Remember Jacob dresses up as Esau. He puts goat skin on because Esau right. apparently is really hairy, which is awful if goat skin is how hairy this man was. Yeah, Esau was a smooth man and a hairy man, really creepy. Jacob is, uh, has bad eyesight. He, he, bless, he gives the spiritual blessing to Jacob, and Esau comes in and pretty much says, is there nothing left for me? And notice the power of words. Ja Jacob does, or Isaac doesn't say, oh yeah, let me just retract that and give it to you. I was cheated. He just says, I've already done it. I can't undo it. My word has been spoken. It was a religious ceremony because it was over a mill. It was a covenant mill. Do, are we not blessed at a covenant mill week after week after week? Anyway, and so what the blessing, he says, I have one. And he gives Esau this blessing that I'm like, thanks, dad. It's like pretty much you're going to wander and uh, be submitted to your brother. And so he tries to repent. He tries is kind of the idea that Hebrews is getting, but you've got to live with the actions of your consequences. He doesn't really repent. He doesn't go, I can't undo selling that, his birthright for a bowl of soup and lentils. He was rejected by his father and could not undo his sin. The analogy for the Christian is clear. We, like Esau, are promised a glorious inheritance. The question before us is this. Will we squander it for something temporal and short-lived, i.e. comfort and escape from persecution? That was what the, the, the Hebrew audience was wrestling with. Do I give this up so I can just live my life? For us, it might be um, ease, comfort, it's just hard to come to all the services during Holy Week. It's hard to be there every Sunday. It's hard to fast. I'm always hungry. Are we going to forfeit the great spiritual blessings in Jesus for the sake of comfort and pleasure? The same thing Esau wrestled with. So it is interesting. He goes through the great hall of faith, and then he finally ends with a negative example in Esau. Or will we strive onward and set our eyes on the prize of eternal life? With Christ. So that ends the chapter. Here, these are applications for this final section in particular, but really the whole chapter thus far, taken from uh, Mary Healy, the commentator. It's practical wisdom when facing suffering. So, are you facing suffering in your life, whether small or great? Here's the practical wisdom from Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Look to Jesus, remember his suffering and the reward he received. Maybe you get the book, your hands on that book by E.B. Pusey. Two, in this light, make up your mind to endure. You sometimes have to tell yourself, I'm going to endure and it's not going to be fun. Point three, remember God's discipline is a sign of his fatherly love for us. And that, appropriately accepted and endured, it produces good character. Do not lose heart and give up. Instead, do what you know is right. There should be a period there. Seek to be at peace with everyone Root out all bitterness. If you're going through a time of suffering, maybe a good way to redirect your energy and angst is to start thinking about your relationships and amending them with other people. Seek to be holy in all your conduct. If you're facing suffering of any type, whether it's at work or at home or physical, may it be a time of purging for your own life from sin. Any comments, questions? No, not, uh, you'll go last, all right? Anything else? Comments, thoughts, questions? All right, Sarah Helen, is it about the. Oh, Nancy has one, yes. Are we saying is, is, is suffering the discipline? 
Yeah, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is suffering. He's giving us a mindset for understand suffering. Just don't think of suffering as something that it's unavoidable, right? And if you're going to be a Christian, it becomes even more uh, prominent that the culture of the world around you will suffer or will cause suffering for you, will persecute you. And so it's inevitable. And so rather than see it as this thing that you just want to get rid of and flee constantly, accept it as discipline because it's a given in life. It's very similar to James, James 1, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, very writer of Hebrews language, perfect and complete. So yes, anything else? All right. Oh, was that a hand? No, okay. Well, God bless you all. We'll see you at the altar, all right?